DiscerningHearts.com presents St. Joseph and His World with Mike Aquilina. Mike Aquilina is a popular author working in the area of church history, specializing in patristics, the study of the early church fathers. He is the executive vice president and trustee of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology, a Roman Catholic research center based in Steubenville, Ohio. He is a contributing editor of Angelus Magazine and a general editor of the Reclaiming Catholic History series from Ave Maria Press. He is the author or editor of more than 50 books, including St. Joseph and His World, the book on which this series is based. He has hosted 11 television series on the Eternal Word Television Network and is a frequent guest commentator on Catholic Radio. St. Joseph and His World, with Mike Aquilina. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Welcome back, Mike. Hey, thanks for having me back, Chris. It has just been fascinating exploring St. Joseph and his world. First, I have to ask you, what was it that motivated you to put this book together? And were you surprised at the timeliness of it all? You know, I'm not sure uh, uh, what motivated me to put it together, except for the, the importance of St. Joseph and my own heritage of devotion to him, that which I, which I got from my mother. Uh, she had a deep devotion to St. Joseph, you know, named my older brother after him and credited St. Joseph with my older brother's survival. He was born very premature in 1954. So that was quite a dangerous thing back then. And St. Joseph pulled him through and he's named Joseph. And so my mother always had a deep devotion to the patriarch and the Holy Family. You know, his image was prominent in our house when I was growing up. My sister lives in that house, and that image is still there. So that was always just part of my background. Was I surprised by the timing? Yes. <laughs> yes. You know, I expected the book to come out earlier, and, and no, it, it had one delay and then another. And then it, it just happened to come out on the very day when Pope Francis announced a year in honor of St. Joseph. And yes, that was a huge surprise to me. I couldn't help but think of it as Our Lady smiling on the project, because I had asked her for help throughout the, the writing of the book. Uh, it's, it was a hard book for me to write, difficult to find the voice, and it's difficult to figure out, you know, what to say. And I, and I was going to her pretty regularly through the composition of the book. So I, I looked at that as her way of smiling on the project. What I love about it is that you are giving us this quite, I think, a cinematic look at the life of St. Joseph. So it's filled with not only the focus on the main character, but also everything around it that shapes the story. Yeah, and everything I write, historical context is supremely important. I want to tell the story. I want to tell it with historical rigor. Don't I try not to rely on things like legends and, uh, and questionable traditions, but focus on the things that we know from historical evidence and archaeological evidence. So that's always my focus in the books I write. I, I try to keep that my focus in this particular book because it's especially difficult with St. Joseph. There's so much legendary material out there. There's so much material that's fanciful and imaginative. I tried to just stick with the historical record, what we know to be reliable. In a very real way, you've walked his land. You've been in his town. You have a sense of the presence. I, I, mean, I know that sounds weird, but if, when you go on pilgrimage in particular, the, you do get a sense of the presence of those you're 
encountering if only in the communion of saints. Does that make sense? I, I don't know if I'm it being does. clear about that. It does. Uh, people told me uh, that before I went to the Holy Land and before I went to Rome, but you're right. Uh, I mean, it does kind of transform your imagination. So that afterwards, when I was listening to the gospel proclaimed at Mass, it was as if it moved from still photos to motion pictures or mm -hmm. from black and white to color. You know, suddenly I was in those places. You know, I was on Mount Tabor, for example, and I could see the scene pretty vividly because I had walked that ground. It was a different experience after I made the pilgrimage to the Holy Land. Bearing all that in mind, Mike, what you've been able to bring to us, particularly in the section of chapter three of St. Joseph in his world, this sense of who Herod was, and it gives us a sense of the people. When you talk about Herod the Great, didn't realize, I just always saw him as a bad guy. He's the bad guy. But yes. when you understand the reason why they called him the great, he did extraordinary things and created in that world, brought it to our prosperity, hadn't had in generations upon generations. And yet the people didn't like him. That's right. He really did bring uh, bring economic prosperity, as you mentioned, and he, he brought a level of respect to the country because it was a, an important world power. It's not that it had the same military might as Rome or some of the other places at that time, but it was important strategically. He was really the guardian of a thoroughfare, a place that you needed in order to move troops around that region of the world, in order to move goods from one place to another. So it was a key to economic prosperity and military uh, might and even international security. It was a, just a very important spot on the map. Herod took this backwater and he really made it important to world history. So, I mean, he earned his name. They called him Herod the Great while he was still alive, huh. and he did a lot to earn that. He brought riches into the land. He built great architectural marvels in the country so that the people could be proud of their land and their home. Uh, and he created jobs for a lot of people by building these amphitheaters and racetracks and raising towers and obelisks and dredging harbors and doing all the things that he did in order to make his country a world power. So people should have been grateful. I think that's the way he felt. They owed him for this, and yet they did not give him affection. They did not give him acceptance. They always looked at him as a foreigner. They never quite trusted him. And of course, his own paranoid style, his own murderous tendencies, his um, unstable personality. All of these things contributed to their contempt, certainly. But the contempt was real, and he felt it. And so he always felt a certain estrangement from his people. And at a certain point, I think he kind of gave up trying to win their affection. And instead, he just strove to dominate them, to instill fear in their hearts, to make them afraid of plotting against him, because they would be afraid of getting caught. Mm. Even though he cut their taxes. <laughs> you think they'd yeah. be excited because he cut their taxes. Right. It doesn't always work that way. No, it doesn't. There must have been, you know, it's that something you just, you can't buy it, that, that respect and that loyalty, really. And I can see where that could feed into his paranoia. What can I do? 
There's nothing I can yeah. do. And so it, it becomes very bitter and hardcore, I would think. Yes, yes. And it did in his life. He was a, a very unhappy man. He started looking for happiness in strange places and had a, a chronic dissatisfaction with the things he had, like the sons he had, whom he murdered, like the wife he had, Miriam, whom he loved, and yet whom he murdered. So many family members he murdered because of suspicion and because of dissatisfaction. So he never really found the happiness. The description of his death was utterly miserable. He suffered physically uh, so much uncontrollable itching all over his body. He had kidney problems. He had gangrenous infections in places we don't want to mention. Mm -hmm. And he was kind of attacked by maggots while he was, he was still living and walking around. And again, these details come from the accounts of sympathetic sources, you know, who, who really had respect for Herod. But they have to recognize that the man was crazy and that he was a despot and that he was miserable in the end. He knew that he would not be mourned. He knew that there would be no grief in the land when he died, when his death was announced by the heralds. And so he made arrangements so that all of the beloved people in the country, certain select beloved men, would be executed at the moment of his death so that there would be grief in the country at that moment. Somebody would be mourning at that moment in the country and the moment would be remembered. It's kind of a crazy thought, but it was the only way he felt there would be grief upon his death. Wow. Wow. And again, you really were very meticulous in going to trusted sources. You used the first century Jewish historian Josephus Boy, where will we be without Josephus's chronicling of so much of that history? He really does give us so much of the backstory to the life of our Lord. So we have to be grateful to him for that. You have to exercise a certain amount of caution using Josephus because he was trying to uh, emphasize his own importance and the importance of his people and, and their military might and so on. But so much of what he said is confirmed by other sources as well from other places. The Roman historians, for example, were also very much aware of King Herod and what he was doing, how he was living, and they recorded it in their own chronicles. So we do have quite a bit of material that's reliable about King Herod, by, and, and it's set down by eyewitnesses. It's easier with a public figure like Herod to be able to document and to chronicle his activities, his life, and all those things that surround him. Not so much for Joseph, a little bit harder. And there is, as you point out, he kind of grew up in obscurity and, and his parentage isn't really, isn't really clear. However, you really strip it away and present very plausible more like probable parentage for St. Joseph. I, I tried to present their lives, Herod's life and Joseph's life on parallel tracks, you know, so that we could see them so that the contrast was all the more vivid. Scott Hahn brought this out in his foreword to my book, that it kind of follows the method of Plutarch, you know, where you look at two different people, you look at their lives in parallel so that you can compare them and contrast them. You can see each of them more vividly in the light of the other. Well, with St. Joseph in the New Testament, it can be confusing for folks, Mike, because they see in Luke and in Matthew that his father, they're not the same name. One is yes. Jacob and the other is... The name Eli, uh, you know, that we, uh, we still use today. 
and, and yes, you know, there can be some confusion. In that one particular instance, it helps us if we look to the ancient sources. The uh, historian Julius Africanus, who was writing in the 100s, went to the Holy Land and met with the members of the family of David, the descendants of David. And he himself consulted the genealogical tables, and he found out that this is easily reconciled because uh, Joseph's mother had been widowed, that she was left a childless widow by her first husband. And then, according to the law, you know, she was married by his brother. And so the children she bore to his brother were also credited to her first husband. So Joseph would have claimed the parentage of both fathers, so to speak, his mother's first husband and her second husband, who would have been the first husband's brother. Oh, yeah, we see that. It's very common in the Old Testament to see that. Yes. Very often. And Mike, his birth date is one that can be confusing for folks. So sometimes we hear of Joseph or we see pictures of him as an older man, and yet we see pictures of him also as a younger man. And I love how you break that down like a detective to kind of give us a, a fuller perspective, his age and physicality. Yes, there are conflicting traditions based on conflicting speculations that in the time of the church fathers, people tried to imagine uh, the St. Joseph. Uh, and of course, they pictured him in different ways. It was extremely valuable to the earliest of the church fathers to defend the virginity of Mary. That was one of the doctrines of Christianity, Mary's perpetual virginity. That was one of the doctrines that was most often challenged. We can tell that it was challenged already in the time of the New Testament, because the texts of the New Testament themselves are so insistent upon her virginity and upon God being the sole father of Jesus Christ. So the church's response often, people would go over the top in their apologetics. They would emphasize the impossibility of Joseph's being the biological father of Jesus in order to protect the honor of the Blessed Virgin. And we find this from very early on in the church's history. Some of the earliest documents that we have the earliest Christian documents that we have are documents that defend the virginity of Mary. There's one called the Ascension of Isaiah. It's an Egyptian extra-canonical text uh, that comes from the first century. It was probably set down around 70 AD. Another document that comes from just a little bit later is called the Infancy Gospel of James, and it was originally titled the Gospel of Mary. Well, in both of those documents, we find St. Joseph appearing as a very old man. Why is that? The early Christians wanted Joseph to appear incapable of consummating the marriage, uh, and that was the way they thought they could, could safeguard all claims to Mary's virginity. So St. Joseph is then robbed of every virtue, and impotence is put forward as a virtue instead. And that just rubbed some of the church fathers the wrong way. St. Jerome, in particular, reacted against this particular line of argument. And we find St. Thomas Aquinas taking up the argument from St. Jerome and advancing it then in the 13th century. At the same time, some of the church fathers recognized that it would have been difficult, if not impossible, for a very old man, according to some accounts, a 90-year-old man, to have done the things that St. Joseph was presented as doing in the gospel according to Matthew. And 
of making that long trip to Bethlehem under these arduous circumstances, of making a hurried trip by night, probably, to Egypt under duress as well. These would have been difficult for a man of, certainly of my age, <laughs> they would have been well nigh impossible, I think, for a man in his 90s, as as St. Joseph is presented in some of the, the legendary material from the, the early centuries of Christianity. We'll return to St. Joseph and his world with Mike Aquilina in just a moment. Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app in which you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Deacon James Keating, Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more are found on the Discerning Hearts free app. Did you also know that you can stream Discerning Hearts programming on numerous streaming platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, and so many more. And did you know that Discerning Hearts also has the YouTube page? Be sure to check out all these different places where you can find Discerning Hearts. From a letter from St. Paul to the Ephesians, chapter 6. Be strengthened in the Lord in the might of his power. Put on the armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For our wrestling is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and the powers, against the world rulers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness on high. Therefore, take up the armor of God so that you may be able to resist the evil every day and stand in all things perfect. Stand, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of justice and having your feet shod with the readiness of the gospel of peace, in all things taking up the shield of faith with which you may be able to quench all fiery darts of the most wicked one. And take for yourself the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit that is the Word of God. With all prayer and supplication, pray at all times in the Spirit, and be vigilant in all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. The St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology is a nonprofit research and educational institute that promotes life transforming scripture study in the Catholic tradition. Founded by Dr. Scott Hahn and with current Vice President Mike Aquilina, the Center serves clergy and laity, students and scholars with research and study tools, from books and publications to multimedia and online programming. The St. Paul Center welcomes you to their free online studies. Whether you're studying scripture for the first time, looking to take your studies to a higher level, or whether you're ready for advanced training, you've come to the right place. In addition, for each track of study, they recommend books that will enhance your study in prayer and build your library of essential works in biblical theology and spirituality. The studies are free. Just visit SalvationHistory.com to view a complete library. We now return to St. Joseph and His World with Mike Aquilina. 
I really got a sense of the life of the, of the carpenter in his time. The way you described it, the type of trade that he had, that he learned from his father, because that the trades were passed down in a family, just the, the raw strength to be able to not only do the work, because there was no machines. You, I mean, if you're chopping something or you're trying to even put things together, there was no glue. So you had to work, you know, you had to do a lot of handwork, a lot of, again, the physicality of it all. And then to have to walk the distances between the job sites. Yeah, you had to be in good shape. You had to have a, a sharp mind as well, just to be able to visualize the way the finished product would look and, and to bring it there. Again, there were no power tools. There were no powered modes of transport. Uh, so you had to have strong arms, you had to have a strong back, and you had to have a sharp mind. All of these things were necessary in order to do the labor a carpenter does and to run the business that carpentry was in that time. So St. Joseph would have had to acquire all these skills as he was growing up, and then he would have been, he would have grown into a respected position. Uh, it probably didn't make him wealthy, mm -hmm. but it gave him a way uh, to put food on the table from day to day, and even to put a little bit of money away for those rainy days. It was a respected, important trade in that time, especially during the reign of King Herod, when, as we, we discussed last time, there was a building boom going on, and there was a great need for carpenters, stonecutters, and other craftsmen. They were well-respected and honored for their labors, especially in this country. In, in other places, not so much. Often, those tasks were relegated to slaves. They were respected. Plato, Aristotle, and so many other uh, leading lights of the Greek tradition really looked down upon people who worked with their hands. But that was not so in the Jewish tradition. In the scriptures of Israel, all of the great heroes are working men, and they were respected for their work. A certain dignity that was seen in human labor. It was a participation in God's creation. It was an honorable thing to do with your body and with your time. And the importance of their faith, of really of their religiosity, if I could use that word, to as a part of their everyday life, it saturated the people of this time where they were at. Am I correct? Yes, yes, it did. I, I mean, there was a, a great religious revival going on. I've mentioned the emergence of great figures who would be remembered forever and are still remembered today in Judaism, like Hillel and Shammai. The major movements in Judaism during that time, the Essenes, the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and others were all thriving. You know, the, and these were religious movements, uh, the religious schools with their proponents and rich culture in every case, and they were thriving. They were gaining members, they were gaining influence throughout the land. And Herod was rebuilding the temple on a grand scale, and people could see it just being transformed before their eyes. And he was, he was giving it more grandeur even than Solomon had given it in its first construction. So yes, this was a time of great religious feeling, of great religious development, of, of religious culture. Uh, it was a time of expectation as well, because by the terms of their own religion, things seemed to be coming to a head. People expected a deliverer, a redeemer. And it seemed that the moment for that redeemer was at hand. 
And we can't downplay the possibly influence of the Essenes, that particular sect of Judaism, as you point out, very probably was known by Mary and Joseph, and maybe even in some ways penetrated in their religious expression as well. Indeed. You know, we know the Essenes came to a, a popular consciousness in the 1940s because of the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. This enormous library of material that ranged from the first century BC through the first century AD. And it's all of these books that really tell us something. We don't know how much or how mainstream these documents were, but they tell us something about the religious culture of the time of St. Joseph and of the time of our Lord. So they're very important witnesses. We can corroborate their content by comparing it to what we find in other places. For example, the Jewish historian Josephus, who had some personal experience of the Essenes. We can also corroborate it with what we find in the Roman historians who knew of the Essenes, uh, the, the historians uh, and, and natural philosophers like Pliny, Pliny the Elder, who wrote about them. Uh, we can also compare it to the, the works of the Therapeutae and the accounts of the Therapeutae that we have from Egypt, because it's quite likely that the Therapeutae who lived in Egypt were just the the Greek-speaking Egyptian version of the Essenes. So yes, we do know a bit about the Essenes, even though they have not survived as a movement. And it seems quite likely that they had some influence on the family of our Lord, uh, perhaps on the people of Nazareth. And I'm not the first person to say this. Margul Pixner, the great, the great archaeologist in the Holy Land, was making the argument many decades ago. And John Bergsma, uh, the great Old Testament scholar, continues to make the argument today. John is, a, is also a scholar of the Dead Sea Scrolls, and he believes it quite likely that the family and the village of St. Joseph were influenced by the Essenes. They were at least close to the Essenes if they were not Essenes themselves. So for those who would, for whatever reason, would feel, oh, it's absolutely implausible that the Holy Family, Mary and Joseph, could live a chaste life together. This actually gives evidence that it's very possible that this could be something that would have been something they might have wanted to enter into, given the circumstances of where they lived and also of their life. Yes. Yes. I mean, the Essenes practiced celibacy, and they did have instances of married couples who observed continence in their marriage. So this would not have been something uh, of a novelty. It wouldn't have been something terribly unusual in that time. It would have been something that was perhaps expected among the Essenes and those who were influenced by the Essenes. People consider this, these passages of, about Mary's virginity and the idea of virginity in marriage uh, as strange because they consider them in light of later Judaism after the eclipse of the Essenes, after it died out really as a movement. But the Essenes really did have these phenomena. We do know that Nazareth did observe other practices that were common to the Essenes. Their agriculture, for example, was conducted according to Essene standards and Essene principles. That's been determined by archaeologists. So it seems that there was some influence there. There was something going on. There was some connection. We can also look at the flight into Egypt as a journey that was plotted according to the refuges along the way that were Essene. There would have been enclaves of Essenes in these places where Mary and Joseph would have felt at home and felt understood. I really appreciated was even that that short, but very 
power-packed statement at the very end of this chapter. It is possible that Joseph and Mary knew from a very early age that they were intended for one another. It is possible, too, that a young couple influenced by Essian aestheticism could commit themselves to continence within marriage. It is. Yes. It's I mean, very possible. We, it's not just our yeah. wishing it because we want a younger Joseph it makes it easier to, to look at the pictures. I mean, I don't mean to be so trite in that, but it, it is possible. It is. It is. And we can't say it with certainty, but we shouldn't dismiss it the way previous generations have. We, we can look to the Dead Sea Scrolls as a, a great gift because of what they've shown us about the religious culture uh, during the first century BC and the first century AD, that these things that we encounter in the New Testament that seem so unusual because they don't conform to later practices in Judaism were perhaps not so unusual during the lives of Jesus and Joseph and Mary that this would have been uh, expected among a certain uh, element in the population, that it would have been normal. So yes, I, I, I mean, I don't want to go out on the limb and say that we know this for certain, that they were influenced by Essenes or, or members of, of the movement, because we don't know that for certain, and I don't think we can know it for certain. But it is certainly within the realm of possibility. There's so much that we're still learning about that period. And the period remains obscure in so many other ways. We can look to archaeology as a treasury that keeps yielding new riches and giving us new lights, really, onto the text that we've received in the New Testament. In reality, too, I mean, here we have, it, it's very possible that they had planned for the family. And then once this incredible experience of the Annunciation happens for Mary, and we'll talk more about this in our next episode, but the, the fact that here is the child, and to them, they are both aware this will and is the Messiah. This will be and is the Messiah. Change, that's a game changer. I mean, that changes everything in the heart of this devout couple. It seems more plausible and that they would do that as opposed to just living out a normal life, knowing you have the Son of God in your midst. Yes. I mean, we obviously see a certain awe in the responses of St. Joseph. There's a, a certain wonder, a certain uh, even, even terror of, uh, of, uh, of the magnitude of, of the events that are happening so close to him and in his very life. So he has a sense, a strong sense, that this is huge, that this is just such a seismic event that he fears it, and he feels unworthy of it. Mm, I cannot wait for our next episode of St. Joseph and His World. Thank you so much, Mike. Well, thank you for having me, Chris. I'm looking forward to continuing the conversation. You've been listening to St. Joseph and His World with Mike Aquilina. To learn more about this subject, you can purchase the book, St. Joseph and His World, on which the series is based. Visit scepterpublishers.org, the website for the publisher, Scepter Publishers. Or you can find it at any fine Catholic bookstore. To hear and or to download this episode, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. Or you can find it in the Discerning Hearts free app. This has been a production of the Discerning Hearts in cooperation with the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will please pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax deductible to help support our effort. 
But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about discerninghearts.com. And join us next time for St. Joseph and His Girl with Mike Aquilina.